You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. Foundation Radio is brought to you by The Dugout. The Dugout provides custom quality apparel at an affordable price. Modern style mixed with classic designs, you'll find retro t-shirts brought into the 21st century. Adam has several of his favorite t-shirts in rotation from the team at The Dugout, including customized Dudley Boys, Prince and the Revolution, and the Notorious B.I.G. t-shirts. Right now, if you purchase your items through their Etsy site and use promo code FOUNDATION, you'll receive 15% off your entire order. That's right, 15% off your entire order. Follow them on Instagram at the dugout brand follow the link on their etsy shop and use your promo code foundation for 15 percent off your entire order the dugout custom quality apparel at an affordable price Foundation Radio is brought to you by 10th Ward Barbershop. Serving the historic 10th Ward in downtown Lawrenceville, 10th Ward Barbershop is a full-service barbershop offering quality haircuts, beard trims, and hot shaves. Adam gets his hair and beard trimmed by the owner of the shop, Ryan Kane, and he loves the laser point precision cuts and lineup he provides to him and countless other satisfied customers. But you don't have to take Adam's word for it. WWE superstars Corey Graves and the fiend Bray Wyatt frequent 10th Ward for all their hair and beard trimming needs. Right now, all cuts and trims are by appointment only so head over to their website at 10thwardbarbershop.com and book your appointment now with kane jordan and the rest of the team at 10th ward barbershop that's 10thward barbershop.com and we thank them for supporting the podcast Welcome to Foundation Radio. My name is Adam Barnard. Thank you so much for joining me on this incredibly special episode. My guest today is a national reporter for the Washington Post, the former moderator of Washington Week on PBS, and the co-author of the book Peril, which was written with Bob Woodward about the 2020 election. My friend and colleague joins me today, Robert Costa. Bob, it is so great to see you. How are you? It is great to be with you. Thank you so much. Uh, how are you feeling now? It's been a little bit. You've been uh, running around the country doing the book tour. How are you feeling right now at this present moment? It is the end of the tour. I was thinking about that movie I like with Jesse Eisenberg and Jason Siegel about David Foster Wallace. I, I'm in no way comparing Infinite Jest to our book Peril, but there is something kind of wistful about the end of a book tour, uh, and it's fun for me to come home. Uh, we're speaking actually in my family's home in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, in the basement where I grew up writing reality show articles for the Bucks County Courier Times. I'm seeing friends in Philadelphia and Bucks County. So this weekend, when I'm talking to you, it's a homecoming of sorts. Yeah. It's uh, it's really great to see you. Um, it's been probably 15 years since we've seen each other in person, but I know we keep up together on uh, Twitter and Instagram. But uh, you touched on the first part that I wanted to talk about was reality, which was some of my favorite memories from high school. I know we wrote together as colleagues on the Courier. Um Tell me a little bit more about when you got involved with that, because I know I got involved in 2000, I believe it was. I wrote this ridiculous piece about whether or not Tupac Shakur was still alive, and they thought it was the most insane thing they've ever read, so they brought me on board, and it ended up being this really incredible experience for me. Tell me more about what being a part of reality meant for you as you know a high school student and a budding journalist. I have such appreciation, as I'm sure you do, for the Bucks County Courier Times for having a teenager section inside the paper. This is no joke paper. This is a real 
regional newspaper, the Bucks County Courier Times, and 75,000 readers in the Philadelphia metro area. I was 16 years old, and I wanted to be a writer for this section. I, I believe if the story's right, as I remember it, I applied to be a writer for the Bucks County Courier Times, and ultimately they did not accept me the first time I applied. But then I got to be a participant on a reality show uh, of sorts that the, re- the reality section had run. It was called, The section was called Reality, and to get some promotion for the section, they decided to call it like a reality show. Uh, and I applied to be a, a contestant. And long story short, I was a contestant on the reality section's reality show, and I was ultimately offered uh, an unpaid job writing for reality. So I slipped in <laughs> as a contestant for some kind of wild thing they had going on. I remember that. It was a uh, who wants to win like, 100 bucks. Yes. And you guys had to do a bunch of different things. It was a bunch of different like contests and stuff. And so I, you remember it too? I do remember that. Yeah, I, I think actually, you were a judge. What I was one of the judges of the of the uh, the section at that time. And I remember just like it was just the most insane things. Like you had to come up and sing a song and then you had to do something else. And I don't remember when you were eliminated, but I remember shortly after that was when you joined the section with us. So that's funny that you actually kind of like came in that way. I was, was so jealous of people like yourself who are writing for reality. You joined, as you said, in 2000, 21 years ago. I didn't join until 2002. Yeah. And the reality section, this was really my entry into journalism. It was cool to be writing about things in the community, to go to concerts, to write about music. I wanted to be part of that. It seemed just so fun to be able to have a byline and have a say. Mm -hmm. There was nothing for me more exciting like when I would wake up on Monday mornings, because that's when they published the section, and you would see your byline either somewhere inside the section or even better when you were on the front page. Like, that to me was just the coolest thing in the world, and especially because I had this this level of creativity that was stuck inside of me that I didn't really know what to do with. And being able to go and, and be really out there in public. And people still, I remember getting an email from someone uh, who either taught at Pensbury or taught at Central Bucks West uh, who said, hey, this article that you wrote, this piece you put together is now a part of my curriculum as far as like uh, I did a piece where me and my friend Eugene went to a couple of different stores dressed in our normal clothes. And then we went back an hour later where we were dressed like to the nines and the differences or the differences in services that we got. And how it was based upon the, upon this idea where, uh, you know, we were getting treated differently based on the way we were dressed. And the teacher emailed me and said, we love this piece so much that I actually use this in my curriculum now to talk about different things with stereotypes. And I just thought that was amazing. You know, I never would have imagined that something that I put together would have had such an impact on somebody. So I know, I, I, let me tell you one story about impact on from the reality. Sure. Section. Yeah, go ahead. So I did a, a cover story for the reality section about how students at Pensbury High School, where I went, class of 2004, how students obtained pot. Really? And Andy Weinberg, the editor of the reality section, encouraged me to kind of do an investigative story. This is my first step into the Woodwardian realm of journalism. And so I go around and I figure out, by just having background conversations with students, that most of the pot was being acquired from New Jersey, and people were going across the river, sometimes to certain sources in Trenton, and... They were getting a lot of marijuana. So I wrote this whole story about how it was acquired, how it was sold in the school. Didn't use first names or last names, but kind of really vividly told the story of the underground pot industry at Pensbury High School. 
And I was super proud of this piece. It seemed like an investigative piece, my first probably at age 17. And it, it gets published. Reality used to be on Monday. Then it became, a, I believe, a Thursday show, yes. a Thursday section. And here's what happened. So the story comes out. And then I get confronted that day by all of these potheads at Pensbury. <laughs> oh, man. They come over to me and they say, hey, Costa, we, we were sitting at breakfast this morning and our parents threw this reality section in front of us and said, so this is why you're going to Trenton. So this is why you're after school doing this. And we, I had connected the dots that for how a lot of these people were using pot. And I realized that writing has an impact. Yeah. That parents were reading this. And that the kids said, like, please stop writing about drug use. We do not need our parents breathing down our necks. That's funny. So there was no serious heat after that, though? Or did you feel like, well, super threatened? Oh, I didn't, just- feel, I didn't feel threatened, but they were just stunned that, you know, the secrets of their lives were kind of spilled out in 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 the paper and yeah. that's it was a real lesson to me that journalism has an impact absolutely yeah and um one thing i, I do want to talk about before we get into peril and we talk a little bit more about your career coming up is uh my wife courtney would be i would be remiss to not ask this for her but i love this story i remember watching television i was guess it was around 2004 i graduated high school by that point and i'm just sitting and watching and all of a sudden i see you on tv again and i went oh shit there's bob costa on tv and John Mayer is standing next to you playing guitar at your senior prom at Pensbury. Can you walk me through how you were able to connect with and ultimately get John Mayer at your school? Because I know you'd work to get him there for your junior prom as well, right? Things fell through. How did that, how did that puzzle sort of come together for you? <clears throat> so in 2000, 2002, in the fall, I went to see John Mayer play at the Leah Cora Center at Temple University. And I go up and get my Bucks County. I'm reviewing this concert for the Courier Times reality section. So I go up to the ticket office and they have two tickets for me because I'm a reporter and it's at will call. And I go down to sit near the front because they they give reporters good tickets. Mm -hmm. They want a good review. Right. And there's a guy sitting next to me and his name's Ben Berkman. He works for a company called Octone Records. And at the time, this is the fall of 2002, Maroon 5 is opening, but Maroon 5, you must understand, in the fall of 02, was not famous. Right. Songs right. About Jane was out, but it had not caught traction in any way. So I start talking to Ben Berkman, and he says, you should meet this band I manage, Maroon 5. So he brings me backstage, and I meet Maroon 5. And I say to Maroon 5, after I interview them for reality, you got to come play at my high school, Pensbury High School. Okay, we'll think about it, we'll do it. And they're, they're not famous, so they're all about it. And then I meet John Mayer, because he's around the backstage area. And I say, John, you got to come play at the Pensbury High School prom. And I give him this binder about the Pensbury prom, just in case I had seen him. I had brought it along with me. And Dude, I ended up seeing him. You were prepared even I was then, totally I prepared. It. I love it. And long story short is that Maroon 5 ultimately comes in 2003 to play at my high school. And just a few months after Maroon 5 comes at Pensbury, their song Harder to Breathe hits nationally and they right. become a big band. And so Mayer, I tried to get him in 03, doesn't come. But then a few days before the 04 prom, I talked to his manager, talked to his publicist, and he ultimately decides to come down after playing in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, flies back to New York, takes a an SUV Escalade or whatever it was down. I meet him in front of the Burger King in Fairless Hills. He's got a guitar on his back. He's wearing jeans with a tuxedo jacket top, and he walks across the street and he plays Clarity 
He plays uh your body is a wonderland, and he plays no such thing. That is crazy, man. Now, that probably for you was was that the first time you were like, yep, I can do this. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I also wondered, was this the peak of my life? <laughs> I really did. I said, this is probably the greatest thing I'll ever do in my life. I mean, it's John Mayer, for Christ's sake. Like, he it's played probably, my prom. Yeah, I mean, that's unbelievable. Like, And then they did that book, Wonderland, about you, which was... Michael Bamberger, yeah. the longtime writer for Sports Illustrated, still a close friend of mine, that's came wild. to my event... In uh, at the free library where I, where I was where I saw you and and your lovely wife, uh, <laughs> and I just saw Bamberger in Washington uh, for breakfast. He's a a real mentor and friend, and it's just it's amazing how so much can come back to your teenage years yeah. from your journalism mentors to experiences like the John Mayer Maroon Five stuff. It's crazy, man. It and and it's it's wild that we are now sitting here 21 years later talking about all of these amazing things that are going on in your well, life. Well, I wouldn't be where I am now if it wasn't for the reality section. Yeah. If I don't get a job as a journalist at 16, 17, then I never meet these bands because I'm not getting concert tickets to sit next to Ben Berkman. So right. much of my life, if I'm not in the rea- if I don't get if Andy Weinberg doesn't give me a shot, <laughs> maybe I'd be some insurance salesman right. in Bucks County, and there's nothing wrong with that. But right. I somehow got in this journalism path. It's amazing, and I I credit Andy Weinberg a lot for the things that I've been doing on this show as well. Because if it wasn't for Andy giving me that experience to say yes, I can do this, I can talk to people, I wouldn't have been able to have people on my show like Eric Bischoff, my the people that I watched from the time I was a kid. You know, these really these towering figures in my life, and and made me feel like. I was I, I was on the right track. So I, I credit Andy for a lot of that as well. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about, though, before we get into peril, um, you went to uh, Cambridge, right? And you were part of the Cambridge Union, which was an incredibly it's an incredibly notable debate society. Uh, how much of that experience being a part of that group sh- sort of shaped your uh, long term as a reporter? Cambridge was a, a wonderful experience. I, in 2007, I interned in the House of Commons for a semester when I was at Notre Dame. I met this professor from Cambridge named Andrew Gamble. He's actually one of the preeminent British political historians over there. He writes a lot about Thatcher, and he's a socialist, but he has a real perspective on British conservatism and global politics. And he and I just clicked. He came to visit the House of Commons. I met him, and he encouraged me to apply to Cambridge, and I did. Got into a master's program at Cambridge, moved to Cambridge in 2008 after graduating from Notre Dame, uh, having never been to Cambridge in my life. And so I go arrive at Cambridge with a, a suitcase and move in, and I start studying there. I study Churchill. I joined the Cambridge Union, which mm-hmm. is this debating society. And it was such a wonderful way to really see some great speakers up close. Uh, I got to be friendly with a guy named John Micklethwaite, who was the editor-in-chief of The Economist at the time. Now he works at Bloomberg. And just so many people were generous to me without any connections. They invited me to come see the economist's office, and he came to speak. I got to meet a lot of politicians. This guy, Michael Gove, who was a British politician, he almost became prime minister a few years ago. Oh, wow. Got to have a kind of a day in Cambridge with him. She's, I just had all these experiences as an American with nothing really, over, with no connections over there, but mm-hmm. they, you just could meet anyone, talk to anyone. The Cambridge Union had famous authors and writers come through. And because I was a member of the Cambridge Union, I could kind of go out to lunch with these film directors and writers. Wow. And so you just get exposed to how people are and who people are. Did you think that it helped you sort of shape your worldview as far as American politics, being over there and watching the way that the, the House of Commons was? Well, like, the House was... of Commons is rowdy. 
<laughs> so Robin Williams once referred to it as Congress with a two drink minimum. So I, I would imagine that it's probably that just as crazy. On. When I was an intern in the House of Commons, I used to go watch it upstairs. They had a viewing area. Yeah. And it, it was like two drinks at the House of Representatives. <laughs> it was fun. And it, get, it did give me a perspective that politics can be rough. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, we don't want violence. We don't want personal shots. But the, the Brits could be incisive and tough on each other. And I, and I like that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes American politics, when it's at its worst, is very boring. Yeah. And people are just laboring through talking points. But the Brits have this approach of just being razor sharp in their attacks on each other. And there was something very fun about that. That's amazing. Now, I know we unfortunately have to get into sort of the uh, the nitty gritty of the things that you wrote in your book, which is called Peril. It's out now. Go ahead and grab it. It's fantastic read. Um, I'm still flipping through it and I've read it about twice now. Tell me more about the process that you started with Bob Woodward when you began. You were going to write this book. How did you become involved in this project initially? Bob Woodward and I interviewed Donald Trump together on March 31st, 2016. And that interview showed us that we could work together and we could do something as as a team. And I, we had been friends, but then we became a reporting uh, partnership for that story. And it was a powerful thing to do, to work with him, to see his method, interview people at length, really understand what's going on with the source and try to just draw them out. So we talked to Trump for 90 minutes. And I would say that that experience cemented the idea in both of our heads that we could work together on something longer in the future. But because I was busy for years hosting a show on PBS, doing MSNBC full-time at the Washington Post, it was never apparent that we would do something together. But I always thought maybe we'd do another story together, right? right. not a book. But Woodward came to me uh, November of 2020 and said, you know, he's thinking about doing a third book. Uh, what, what do I think? Maybe I'd be like to be part of it. And I was honored to even have the conversation. And I just had an instinct that Bob Woodward and I could do this well together because we respect each other. We listen to each other. Uh, we, we both have a same, uh, the same approach to reporting, which is go deep, uh, really be vigorous, be cool, though. Don't get too emotional. Just go deep. Try to tell the truth in as vivid a way as possible. And we just, we just had a, a simpatico approach to journalism that I... I knew in my gut could work as a book. Now, it's always a risk to write a book, to leave any job, to go do something new. But I, I was ready to take the risk, though people say it's not much of a risk working with Woodward. True. But it's a risk to make any change in your career. And I was leaving some stuff on the table to go do this. But I just had such trust in my instinct that working with Woodward on this would work and that we would enjoy the process. Yeah, I mean, as far as leaving any stable position, I'm sure it was probably very difficult. But with someone as established as Woodward going into this and knowing that you're going to have such an in-depth profile, I mean, just access to pretty much anyone for this story. Was there anyone, obviously, besides Trump that you wish you would have been able to talk to as far as your investigative reporting and the things that you did? Uh, tr- Trump declined to participate. I would imagine. So, so, why? <laughs> well, uh, hey, we welcome his participation. Sure, yeah. We want everyone to participate. And President Biden declined to participate. Uh, and that's okay. Yeah. In journalism, you learn you can just go around the bend. If a source is not going to sit down, you talk to every one of the source's advisors and friends. And there's a way to get... Bernstein and Woodward would often call it 
and along with Ben Bradley, the, the most obtainable version of the truth. What is the most obtainable version of the truth? Sometimes you can get the whole thing. Sometimes you can get 95%, but you want to uncover as much as you can obtain and publish it. Now, Bob, I want to go back to something that you said a second ago as far as truth uh, and finding the the biggest version of the truth, right? Just paraphrasing, obviously. One of the things that I always look at when I look at your reporting and I look at your stories is your objectivity, right? You're just a very straight, you're, these are the facts, this is the report, this is what I'm telling you. Um, has that discipline been challenged at all during this particular reporting cycle where you felt like you may not have been able to stay the course as well as you would have liked to? Or was there something that like really rattled you that you found uh, during this reporting that made you feel like you were going to question your objectivity in a way that you hadn't before? It's. I don't look at it as objectivity, per se. I look at reporting as a pursuit of the truth. And whatever the story is, you should get it and share it with people who deserve to know. There's a great quote that's on the Washington Post newsroom wall. Ben Bradley, the late editor, he says, and I believe I'm paraphrasing, but it's almost this. The truth, no matter how bad it is, is never as dangerous as a lie in the long run. And so you want to get beyond any kind of lie. And so objectivity for me is is a strange phrase. It's fine. It's not about being objective or being both sides. You want to be truthful. What was done? What was said? What are people doing? What do we really need to know? Are there documents there? This process has change my perspective on the story I'm covering in this sense. The story for many years in political journalism was red versus blue, Republican versus Democrat. And that was fine when politics was normal, when there were traditional norms being followed, and politics happened within this prism of activity that I would call like the prism of norms within a certain playing field. But now the playing field is not a contained space. There's all these ruptures and changes in American democracy. And because of that, I believe democracy is the story more than red versus blue. And to really be a vigorous, in-depth reporter, you can't just skim the surface of partisan battles. You have to understand what are the tectonic things happening in American democracy, the changes in election laws in the states, what's really happening with outside fringe groups, and not have the assumption that everything's the same as it has always been. You have to be open uh, to new ideas, to new changes. And, and that's something I always challenge myself to do. I have two words above my computer at home when I write the book or when I write for the Post, assume nothing. Because 10 years ago, someone like Bernie Sanders would have seemed like a fringe figure to many people. But he has become one of the defining progressive leaders of our time. Donald Trump would have seemed to most people like a reality show, a clownish person. He became president of the United States. Assume nothing about where we are and where we're going. Don't just think about neutrality and objectivity. Think about what's the truth and can it be reported. And I also believe you got to be fair in the sense of being civil and approaching people straight. Uh, but you don't need to hold anything back in terms of the truth. You, you just put a mirror up to power and show what's happening. You mentioned, too, and I know you talked about this at the event um, that we were at on Friday night. Uh, you mentioned about how how long-term you've been working with both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. When initially your first meetings with Donald Trump, did you ever imagine 
that something like this would happen, like January 6th and, and this really serious attempt at overturning an election. Did you have that, like when you saw him, could you have imagined something like this happening or was it just, did it just come along the lines of he became president and it just kind of was a uh, happenstance because of the, his circumstances? I never imagined an insurrection, but I did imagine a totally changed and upheaval political system. Uh, Trump comes in as an outsider. He had never been in elected office. He had flirted with different presidential runs before in 87 for the 88 run. He had flirted in 99 for the Reform Party nomination. But he had never been in elected office, a governor, a senator, a House member. And so he comes into the office without a deep understanding or appreciation for the system, the political system, the democratic system. And he's been so driven in his career by his brand, his ego, and those things were his guiding lights when he comes into the presidency, this old, staid institution in American life. And he reimagines it in his own image. And part of that reimagining changes his party, but it also changes how he follows things like the transfer of power. And he's, he's not seeing it through the eyes of most politicians, most people who have a history in American politics and American democracy. So I never expected an insurrection. That's, that seemed outside of the, the realm of possibility, but I probably should have had it on the realm of possibility because he had shattered every other norm in American politics, and so maybe the transfer of power. I did believe something bad could happen. That's why I was tracking all of this with Woodward closely. I was in Washington on January 5th. I wanted to follow these crowds. I didn't have the expectation that it could be an insurrection, but I knew something was afoot. Now, you had mentioned you were at the hotel that became their epicenter. The, right, the Willard, the Willard hotel, hotel, which is about a step from the White House. Now, would you have been, now I know you said you were disappointed that you didn't get into the I did hotel. not get a room that <laughs> night, which I should have. Right. Now, what would you, I guess as a reporter, because I'm, I'm always just perpetually curious about these things, would you have been able to have access to those areas? Do you think you would have gotten access to those areas with like Bannon Who and those knows? guys? Who knows? Yeah. It's just amazing how how one little piece then became this, this snowballed and became this entire situation. But um, I know, I guess it was uh, Friday morning. Uh, Steve Bannon was uh, he was indicted. indicted for contempt of Congress. Um, you know, the whole thing. The one quote that keeps sticking out is what you always say is uh, they wanted to kill the administration in the crib. The Biden Oof, administration, which is really just I mean, when you sort of think about that and you think about the levers of power and you think about the people that are actively working with this, especially the fact that the president of the United States is seemingly actively involved in this kind of scenario. Um, what do you think happens next for someone like Steve Bannon? And what does this say going forward for the rest of the investigation? It's a monumental moment for the January 6th House committee, because they have been fighting uh, to get people to testify. And it's been a struggle for them. Bannon it ignored the subpoena uh, that cites our book, Peril. He ignored it to the point of getting a contempt charge from Congress. And ultimately, the Department of Justice decided to indict him. The decision to indict Bannon could cause, we'll see, it could cause others who have been issued subpoenas to maybe get a little bit uh, nervous. Yeah. To say uh, we may have to participate in this committee. Someone like Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, other Trump advisors who have so far not complied with subpoenas. Mm -hmm. If you face jail time and a Department of Justice indictment, that changes your calculus if you're issued a subpoena. If you think you can ignore it, well, maybe you don't do anything. Ultimately, uh, my reporter's assessment is that the Department of Justice 
and all of these people issued subpoenas are going to wait for, to see what the Supreme Court does. It, it's it's very clear this will likely end up at the Supreme Court yeah. in terms of whether Trump can assert executive privilege or not over his documents. And that seems to be the looming question is whether or not he's still allowed to do that even though he's out of office. So I've been tuned in pretty pretty heavily to see what the, what the status of that is going to be. Um, I guess overall is sort of like a higher level, just as sort of a summation, because um, I want people to read the book and I want to read, you know, I love the how granular you get in the descriptions, in the play-by-play, the analysis. I feel like I'm actually there in the room. If How close did we come to actually seeing the Biden win overturned? I mean, how close really was it? Uh, as close as you can get. Not maybe from being overturned, but from we were very close, based on my reporting and our reporting, to constitutional chaos. Right. And here's what I mean by that. On January 5th, John Eastman, a conservative lawyer, has a memo that we uncovered, two pages, six points, that says Vice President Pence should throw out electors. And that means effectively throwing out millions of votes. And just follow me here for a second. It's a little bit of a winding thing. By Pence throwing out electors, Biden would then not have the threshold to win the presidency, which is 270 electoral votes. So if they threw out Pennsylvania and Georgia, let's say, Biden's number would maybe slip below 270 or maybe a few other states. If they threw out seven states, I believe, six or seven states, Biden would have slipped below 270. And our Constitution says if Congress does not certify a president who has 270 electoral votes— that election then goes to the House of Representatives for a final, clarifying, decisive vote. And in that scenario, Trump knew he could win because Republicans have the most delegations in the House. Right. And our Constitution says if an election ever goes to the House, and it has in the past many years ago, if it goes to the House, it's a vote by delegation. So this was a gambit to put the election into the House, but it needed Pence to buy in and try to throw out electors. It mm. needed that to happen to make it seem legitimate. Pence resisted. Pence did not do that. And when Pence did not do that, the whole thing kind of fell apart, right. even though there was an insurrection. If Pence wasn't participating, but the whole hope was, it appears, at a grassroots level at the very least, to delay the certification with an insurrection, and then at the highest levels to have Pence delay a certification due to his own decision to not count electors. And if those things had both happened— Action by Pence and an insurrection, you would have almost certainly had constitutional chaos. Based on your reporting with Mike Pence, because I know you spent a lot of time, you told a funny story at the Philadelphia Free Public Library about spent the, being the only reporter on Air Force Two. Um, do you think Pence would have actually gone for something like that? Or do you think based upon your experience and your reporting, he would have stayed true to his guns and the Constitution? He had a lot of advice from his lawyers. Mm -hmm. Greg Jacob, some of these unknown people, Mark Short, his chief of staff, were telling him repeatedly, you can't do anything except count the votes. Uh, but in the, the Mike Pence way, he was doing his, what he would probably describe as his due diligence, searching for counsel from all different quarters about what he was able to do. And one of the people he did talk to was John Eastman, who was pressuring him to act. But Pence kept telling Eastman, John, I can't do this because my lawyers are telling me I just have to count the votes. So Pence was processing information, listening to others. He asked the Senate parliamentarian on January 3rd, is there any way I can kind of show support for the Trump effort? And she says, Mr. Vice President, all you can do is count the votes. 
the thing that's gotten the most attention from the book is he Pence talks to former Vice President Dan Quayle, mm. who was Vice President from 1989 to 1993 uh, under George H.W. Bush, and Quayle is probably the only other person in America who shares Mike Pence's profile. Indiana, a Hoosier, a conservative Republican, and a vice president of the United States. No one else with that profile. Right. Very rare. So he talks to someone who's a lot like him. And Quayle says to him, look, in January of 1993, I lost. I had lost to Clinton and Gore, and I had to just count the votes. And it was January 6th, 1993, when Quayle counted the votes. Wow. Same day. Same day. Wow. How much danger was Mike Pence in on January 6th? It was pretty extreme danger. Look, he had Secret Service detail the entire time, but there were people chanting in the hallways and outside the Capitol, kill Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. Jesus. That is terrifying. And they were inside the building. That is absolutely terrifying. And it's not clear how many of them had weapons. And that's the thing. That's one of the things that I, I, I took away from this when I, I remember watching it on TV. I was at work. I was at my office. And I remember seeing the rally that was happening. Uh, and I remember going home for lunch and just watching it on television being like, holy shit. I called my wife. I said, this is something. Like something is very bad is happening here. Um, one of the misconceptions that I think you touched on uh, at the event also, but I really wanted to talk about here because I thought it was a really important part to the story, is there's a misconception um, a seeming misconception that the National Guard was may have been purposefully stopped by the administration from dispatching as quickly as it could. What your reporting showed is that it just was a almost a comedy of errors. It was a complete logistical nightmare and failure. Tell me more about that. There was an expectation that the crowd would never become an insurrection, and that's why General Milley, the head of our military, uh, confides privately in our book to others that this was a grave intelligence failure that there was a lack of planning and thinking through how a Trump rally could become an insurrection at the Capitol that breaches the police line of the Capitol Police. It gets inside the building and has almost a, a warlike scene, right. brutal scene, uh, fighting and punching and, and using weapons to beat police officers. And the National Guard was participating that day at a limited level. They were wearing soft caps, soft uniforms, and the kind of the, almost the traffic direction phase of the National Guard but the, the National Guard was ready to come in, but it just took hours to activate them to get these troops ready, dressed, armed over at the Capitol because they were not ready in any way to defend the building that day. And they were a very small force. Uh, and so we're going to have to see more testimony from Pentagon officials about whether enough was done, whether there was anything else we need to know about. But at this point, our book shows the National Guard got there, but in the eyes of numerous people it was extremely slow uh there's a scene in our book where Alyssa slotkin the congresswoman from michigan calls millie after three o'clock that day and just says where the heck is the guard and he says they're coming they're coming that is just it's staggering to me to think about something like this as 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 large and as full scale as this appeared to be how i guess my other question about this is how not connected, but how organized was this entire situation? Because I know you talk a lot about the Proud Boys, you talk about about the Oath Keepers, you talk a lot about different groups mm -hmm. that are working together in, in this weird way. How organized was it, and how organized did it appear to be going forward with, you know, sort of the higher levels of the government at the time? We're, we're, we still need to have some of those questions answered. Right. Because we know that there was an active legal and political effort to get the election into the House of Representatives. Eastman, Trump, 
Giuliani, Bannon, Pence being pressured, DOJ being pressured. So there's this high-level operation to somehow change how the election's counted and get it into the House. So that's one, let's say, one level mm-hmm. of this entire thing. Another level is what's happening on the ground. How does this move from kind of by the Washington Monument across Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol, almost like a military effort? Who are the operational commanders? Was there a connection between the highest levels and the lowest levels? At this point, it's for the DOJ and the House Committee to try to fill in more of those questions and and fill in those gaps. Because what's evident is that these groups were outside of the Willard Hotel on January 5th all night, and that inside the hotel were some of the high-level people. But what I was not able to confirm with Woodward was what was the level of coordination, if any, between those on the ground and those in the hotel and those in the White House. And maybe it was a sporadic thing that kind of happened with encouragement but not direct coordination, or maybe there was direct coordination. I'm a reporter, not a theorist. Right. And so you just got to answer the questions. And as a reporter, all you have is a a recording device, a notebook, and a pen. Right. The DOJ and Congress have subpoenas. That's the difference. I, uh, I'm curious to see what comes of this, but I know you did make commentary recently regarding um, Donald Trump's use of emails. He does not use emails. And he never uses emails. He's which, a phone guy. Which I feel like, you know, it seems very New York of him in that time frame as the builder, uh, the 1970s New York profile, always use a phone. Don't commit anything to writing. Um, I, uh, do you think that's why there's a certain level of him trying to hide or not hide necessarily. I don't know if that's the right word, but do you think that there is a level of that fear inside of him about the phone records being released because he doesn't want anyone to ask questions? I mean, do you think that's ultimately what this well, is I about? I can't read his mind about his fear, but I know the phone records are what I I would love to see. Right. Because he everything he does is phone calls. I mean, sometimes he meets with people in the Oval, but it's the late night phone calls. Who is he talking to? That would provide a map. It would be a clue, a major clue, series of clues about what was Trump doing we know he met with Pence. We know he was talking to Bannon and Giuliani. But what else did he do? Who else did he call? Right. That's what I feel like would tell the story. Because so much of this is about, yes, what happened on the ground. But we also really need to know what else did the person at the absolute top, Donald Trump, do? What else don't we know? Uh, and one thing I wanted to also touch on, too, is is Joe Biden. Um, there's not a ton of talk about him really at all in this story. But he is kind of player two in this in this book. He is the other central figure that's happening and, and being a part of this book. What were what was going through going on in his camp while the insurrection was going on? And, and I guess did he at any point did anything in your reporting show that he felt like maybe this isn't going to happen? Maybe I will lose this election. Biden is such a political veteran. He seemed to be kind of just taking it all in stride. And it was such a strange moment for Biden politically and personally, because on January 5th and 6th, you have the Georgia Senate elections, and then on January 6th, it becomes clear, the same day as the insurrection, it becomes clear that the Democrats are now going to have the Senate majority. So Biden's coming presidency changes the same day as this terrible event at the Capitol. The violence at the Capitol happens the same day Biden really understands he's going to have new power as president. And so he has to prepare for a lot of things between January 6th and January 20th when he takes office. So my view of Biden is he's very concerned about the rise of white supremacy, domestic terror, extremism. But when January 6th happens, he can't just be totally torn away 
from his own agenda because he has to come in and pass a major spending plan. He has to address the global pandemic. He has foreign policy challenges like the decision he has to make on Afghanistan. So he's balancing a lot of balls in the air. Uh, And it's also tough for Biden because he's the first president in a long time who did not have any kind of concession from his opponent. Trump never concedes, never even calls Biden. And there's a scene in our book where Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, is pleading with Trump, call Joe Biden, call Joe Biden. And Trump refuses to call Joe Biden. So Biden has to watch the insurrection, but also know he doesn't really have a channel of communication with this president. Now, I know that you said that privately, though, at one point, Trump did acknowledge that he lost to Joe Biden, right? In the few the days after the election, Trump's telling Kellyanne Conway and other advisors his own version of acknowledging defeat, which is asking the question, how the heck did I lose to Joe Biden? And in that phrase, of course, is the, fr- the word lose. Right. So he's acknowledging he lost. But by November 6th and 7th, days after the election, Giuliani is now back in Trump's orbit, and he's saying to Trump, this was stolen. And Trump goes, you know what? You're absolutely right. Wow. Wow. So they basically just gassed him up to, in order to get him And then what happens started. on the weekend of November 7th, 8th, Giuliani goes to Four Seasons Total Landscaping. <laughs> so I was going to ask that. It was part of my notes here, and I took it out because Michael, you know, uh, friend Michael Smirconish asked the question at, in the Philadelphia Library, but I'm going to ask it. How? How did he end up at Four well, Seasons? It's, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> they they think they're going to the Four Seasons. It's unbelievable, man. It's unbelievable. It's just insane. And I know such a Philly story. It really like if there's anything that could be more Philadelphia than the fact that Rudy Giuliani ends up next to a crematorium in an adult bookshop giving a speech about a stolen election. I'm not sure. The only thing missing probably is gritty tap dancing in the street. I think that might be the only thing. Uh, how pissed was Trump? When he finds out he was irritated, we have a scene in our book of Trump (laughs) eating uh, pigs in the blanket and having his aides up in the residence at at the White House. And he's just fuming because Trump can't stand negative media coverage. And the media was pretty tough on Rudy, merciless. (laughs) And this scene of Rudy, uh, it was too much and it was being ridiculed on Twitter. Trump saw it all and hated it. I actually do have a Four Seasons Total Landscaping shirt because of this, so uh, it, some some good did come of that. Um, you tell a story about Woodward discussing Nixon's final days in office, because I know there seems to be a lot of parallels in some aspects to Donald Trump and, and Richard Nixon. Um, where Nixon's drunk, he's hitting the floor, and he's talking to pictures on the wall of former presidents, and he knows he's going to be done. Um, the biggest difference between Richard Nixon and Donald Trump is that Nixon lost the support of his party. They told him, they pulled him into that, that famous meeting. They said, we're basically done. You're on your own. And then he resigns. There doesn't seem to be any of that in the current GOP. And it, it, more specifically, it seems like there's a coordinated effort to ensure that they're going to basically rank and file behind Trump. Do you think there's anything that will come out in this investigation or in your reporting that will have anyone in the GOP, you know, not just Mitch McConnell, but the sort of the lower level foot soldiers that will finally say, you know what, enough is enough and we don't want to deal with this anymore. Well, they're in a tough position. Uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in our book, privately calls Trump a fading brand. He uses a Kentucky term, Trump's an off the track thoroughbred. So he clearly has no personal like for Trump. There's animus there. Mm-hmm. But McConnell's not fighting with Trump ahead of the 2022 elections in a public way. In fact, McConnell just endorsed Herschel Walker, the Trump favorite in the Georgia Senate race, 
uh, because he knows that that's probably where the election's going. So McConnell is a political realist. He doesn't like Trump, but he's not going to start having a civil war with Trump in the GOP. Kevin McCarthy has had his own issues with Trump, but he's still working arm in arm with Trump to help the Republicans win back the majority in the House in 2022. So there's an acceptance at the highest ranks of the party that Trump has political capital. And there's some people like Lindsey Graham in our book, who the South Carolina senator who wants to rehabilitate Trump and plays golf with him all the time and says, please come back, please come back. We'll have an even better time in 2024. It is such a jarring uh, difference between 2021 and 1974. You think about Woodward's book, The Final Days, Barry Goldwater, the legendary conservative senator from Arizona, goes to Nixon and just says it's over. Yeah. You don't have the votes from the Republicans in the Senate. And he says to Nixon, and he had been a big Nixon f- friend and supporter, he says to Nixon, you don't even have my vote. Wow. And, and that's when Nixon says, I'm out. Yeah. I'm done. Because if I don't have Barry Goldwater, I don't have anybody. Uh, but the Republicans, it, this has been a decade-long story for the Republicans. I've covered the Tea Party movement going back to 2009. And so really since 2008, 2009, so many Republican leaders don't fully understand the fury and anger of their own voters Mm. and don't want to get on the wrong side of them. And when you're living in a a state of political paralysis that's in part due to fear, uh, you start making decisions that are calculated more about staying in power with some kind of uh, transactional bargain with your voter and Trump than anything else. As far as your reporting and you know, with Woodward and things that you've been doing, it seems as though you spoke to the anger and the fury of the voters that are in the Trump base, especially after January 6th. Um, was there ever a time where you or maybe Bob Woodward felt that you guys were in danger because of the reporting that you were doing? Um, you know, there is a, a certain level of violence that comes along with some of these groups, specifically the Proud Boys, as we saw on January 6th. Um, this crowd obviously feels a lot different than the Nixon crowd. Um, and it, it, these groups are essentially, and a lot of them are labeled as domestic terrorists. Um, do you feel concerned or worried about any of these groups specifically taking issue with the things that you've reported on, or maybe say taking a, a, a sort of a certain level of fear in regards to something that Donald Trump would say back regarding your reporting? Well, Donald Trump has been critical publicly of my reporting in the past, and but not in any kind of concrete way, just in a, a broad swipe fake news, usually with a story he doesn't like. But I've also interviewed Trump dozens of times in the last 10 years. So it's with him, the criticism can be searing, but it's it comes and goes, and it's mostly based on his own interpretation of an individual story. Were we ever worried about our security and violence? If you look at journalism today, violence is everywhere, unfortunately. And it's a, this is a global story. The freedom of the press is under threat, and it's under threat from a myriad number of sources. You look at Jamal Khashoggi, our late colleague at the Washington Post, murdered for doing his job, murdered. And he's pulled into an embassy and killed. And this is not an unusual story, unfortunately, across the world. Uh, Journalists are murdered or detained, I think, of Austin Tice, uh, detained abroad. A lot of journalists are facing Jason Rezaian from the Washington Post was uh, jailed by the Iranians for a long time, finally freed, thank gosh. Uh, and so my point is journalism's under threat, freedom's under threat, and you have to be aware of that. 
I have not felt personally threatened. I mean, are, are there people who have sent me graphic notes and letters? Yes. But I, I don't like living in kind of a state of fear or start to overthink crazy things. Are, are things can be things be really unsettling at times? Yes. But you got if you start calculating too much, you're going to be uh, missing the story. Journalism's about getting there, getting there, not being afraid. And you have to be careful. But I try to treat people with respect. Uh, and if someone comes up to me and says fake news, I will just say, uh, thank you for your feedback. Uh, can we have a conversation? And want to ask them about their perspective on whatever I'm covering. Because right. I'm not here to have a huge fight with anyone or a dialogue. I'm, I'm, I'm here to be a reporter. You're just doing your job. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what what sets you aside specifically. I, uh, I I would imagine that just leaning on that so heavily or being so invested that because I know I shared a tweet recently where I tagged you about the book and you retweeted it and I had lots of really positive feedback. And then all of a sudden I started to see some really wild shit come through the, the, the Twitter feed. And I'm like, this is crazy. So I can't even imagine <laughs> on a day to day basis what you must deal with. Just on your Twitter feed but alone. Let, yeah. To be clear, it's not me dealing with. No, no, yeah. yeah. I don't mean to, to yeah, couch it like that. I, I just I, mean I, like. And whoa, I also yeah. am fine. I'm fine with people being right. very angry or very happy. If someone loves what I'm doing, okay, great. And if someone comes up to me and says, "Keep telling the truth," I said, "That's thank you." <laughs> but I'm not expecting that or really need that. Right. And if someone says, "I hate what you do," thank you. Yeah. Uh, thanks for reading. <laughs> uh, you really have to just kind of focus on the job. Because if you start thinking too much about what people are saying, sometimes people just hate that you're covering the news. They, they, they don't like the story in the news, so they'll hate the messenger. Right. I've been doing this long enough to have... Not, it's not just thick skin. It's a, I have a temperament where say whatever you want. Yeah. This is a free country. It's part of the beauty of America. If you despise us or love us, you can. that's great. We're not asking you to do either. Right. One final question about peril, um, and it sort of tied in with a, a, a conversation at your first meeting with Steve Bannon back uh, 2011, 2012. He had made a movie about Sarah, Sarah Palin, Palin called The Undefeated, and I was going out to cover him in that movie, and I met him at a coffee shop. And his statement to you was, nationalism and populism is the future of America. And at the time, you said, you're crazy. That's insane. Oh, yeah, that's I thought insane. it was like something out of the 30s, Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> you're nuts. This isn't going to happen. And now we're seeing this play out in broad daylight. Uh, what do you think happens next at going forward from this point, based on your reporting, based on having that knowledge in your head from Steve Bannon? Well, it's not just about Bannon, but you think about the currents in global politics. Nationalism is on the rise in Europe. It's on the rise, in, you could argue, in India and China. Uh, and so you have nationalist instincts and 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 when i step back and try to understand I, I only have a master's degree and i'm a reporter why is nationalism on the rise and when i talk to voters anecdotally or i talk to experts on the, the subject the answer is usually the rise of nationalism generally speaking of course it can be driven by race it can be driven by economic factors but a lot of it's a reaction to the global economy, the globalization of things. And when people feel like they are losing their bearings from their community, they become angry to the point of fury at the global economy. 
Sometimes it's uh, manifested with anger towards what people would call the global elite, CEOs, uh, bankers. Sometimes it can be anti-Semitic. Sometimes it can be racist. And so all of these things are coursing through global politics, uh, and it leads ultimately to this new atmosphere where nationalism can rise and get traction. Bannon has been one of the American figures who has been part of that whole nationalism movement. Trump, of course, used it to help win the presidency in 2016. So where is this all going? I see the nationalism on the right as a very real force, but on the left, I'm also paying attention uh, close attention to the rise of what I would call, you know, new progressive politics mm. or more of what in Europe you would call democratic socialism. Right. Not socialism in terms of things being owned by the state, but in having services from the state to provide wholesale health care coverage, uh, maybe have um, universal basic income, that because of the instability of the global economy, the left's answer to many of these new issues in our society is to provide more from the state, higher taxation to lead to people having more expanded health care coverage, more cash. And you see it even now in Joe Biden's policies, uh, this this stimulus Mm. to provide people with unemployment at a higher level, to give people cash. So the right's answer in many respects is nationalism and Trumpism in, in America and on the left, it's more of that Bernie Sanders, AOC, and Joe, Joe Biden, the, Biden. President Biden has coupled himself politically with the progressive movement rather than trying to just be moderate Joe. So those are kind of the new answers. They're answers to the question of what will be next in a global fractured world. I said it was the last question, but I lied. I have one more for you. Trump, in 2024, he runs. Does he run? And do you think he has a real We're shot? We're talking at right now in November of 2021. Correct. All factors point to yes. Okay. But that's a long time from now. Right. A lot of things can happen. You never know about his personal life, his hell. You never know about the same for President Biden or any president. Right. How do things play out politically? There's an expectation now in the Republican Party that they have a big wave in 2022. But we don't know what happens in 2022. What's going to happen with China and Taiwan? What are the foreign policy issues that we can't even predict? Remember, in October of 2001, George W. Bush, his number one focus was passing a tax cut. Right. Tax policy was the biggest issue. Uh, Excuse me, in August of 2020. I was going to say August August of 2001. Right. Sorry, it's been a long long book tour. (laughs) It's a long book tour. (laughs) But in August of 2021, August of 2001, <laughs> when Adam is writing for reality, yep. <laughs> George W. Bush is focused on a tax cut. This is a long way of me saying, of course, no one would have predicted in the general population that in September of 2001, the world would change. And the issue in the 2002 midterms was not the tax cut. It was foreign policy. Right. And think about this. Most presidents, when they have their first term, lose seats in the first midterms. So you think about Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. 2010, what happens? The Republicans win 60-plus seats, right. a Republican wave. 1994, Bill Clinton's first term. What happens? Newt Gingrich wins the speakership. Yep. Uh, you think about um, for Ronald Reagan. He had a tough 1982. Democrats had a good year. 2002, George W. Bush is one of the rare presidents to do well 
in his first midterms, in part because the whole country was galvanized by the response to 9-11. And I say all of that just to have caution that we don't know what the world looks like in November 2022. Bob Woodward and I did not decide to even talk about doing a book until Thanksgiving of 2020. Wow. So if you'd come to me a year ago to this day and said, next year you will have written a book, I'll say, I don't think that's right. Right. So really, we don't and, know. What did, I, what did I say earlier? Assume nothing. And again, it, it, you know, there was there was talk in the book as well. There's a whole section that goes into the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, one of the things that really struck me about what Donald Trump said was when Woodward asked him if he thought this was his defining moment as a president. And Trump said no. Mm-hmm. And it's just that strikes me as, as the kind of uh, sort of mentality that he has uh, and how really, as you said, assume nothing, because we all thought maybe this man would come up and show very presidential appearance on this this pandemic. And 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 it, it, it did not happen. So um, I I would hope to say that things will change as we get closer to the election and see what happens with the midterm. Um, but you're right. Assume nothing at this point. And a lot of people are, are positioning themselves in the Republican Party to run in 2024 in the case Trump doesn't run or is maybe in a politically weakened position. You think right. about Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis. They're all out there trying to be in game day position uh, should they have a shot. And right. that's how politics works. People think Trump will probably run. He probably has the he's the front runner at this point. But who knows what happens and who knows what happens with this January 6th committee and the DOJ. Right. We right. don't know all the facts. Now, I know that you had mentioned just a second ago about how long the book tour was, and I know we talked about that before we started. Um, but, you know, I love seeing all of the success that you've had over the past 20 That's years. That's generous. Thank you. And um, uh, just becoming a part of the national narrative, um, especially with something as impactful as this. Um, when do you find time to just be Jam Bam Bob again? Like, well, do you have time to do that your anymore? audience, I mean, I created my own lame nickname. <laughs> That's, I was just going to get there. Back when we first started in reality together, Bob uh, coined the name Jam Bam Bob, and that's how I knew him for many, many years. And when I saw him on television doing reporting, the first thing out of my mouth was, hey, there's Jam Bam Bob on TV. I'm so, so. glad you actually remember Jam Bam Bob. <laughs> I'm, you, know, you know the movie uh, Mean Girls? Yes. And they say uh, they're trying to make that word fetch happen. <laughs> I think I was trying to make Jam Bam Bob happen. <laughs> Well, it did. It happened with at least one person, Thank and I'm gosh. sure Andy. I'm sure Andy will uh, will approve that as well. Um, but when do you find time, man, to just like like just unwind? Like, do you have a moment to do that, or is it just go go go? Mm, well, I'm trying to maybe take off a few weeks in December. I, you know, too much information. I probably do struggle with the relaxation. <laughs> I, I'm in a work mode a lot. Mm-hmm. Just who? It's how I'm built. Yeah. Uh, we all have to find times to read and think more and to take walks and. Look, we all could have better work-life balance, starting with myself. And so I think after now, the book tour is winding up a little bit, do a few more trips. But other than that, try to spend some time with family and friends. And that's what's most important. Absolutely. It's a well-deserved break for you as well. The book is called Peril. It's out now. It's absolutely fantastic. Please go check it up. Pick it out right now. Bob, where can everybody find you on your social media? Uh, Costa Reports. That's from Instagram and uh, for Twitter. But I just want to say thank you, Adam. It's really, life works in strange ways. If, if you had said to me at age 16 in 2002, or maybe it's probably 2002, uh, that I would go to the Courier Times building in, what was it? Levittown. In Levittown. Yep. Off Route 13. Yep. And I meet a guy named Adam Barnard, who was 
judging my reality section reality show in the cafeteria of a newspaper in Bucks County, and that you know, two decades later, almost two decades later, we would be having a conversation in my basement about an insurrection at the Capitol and Donald Trump as president. <laughs> Life is strange. It is, man. But I'm glad we're we're a part of the journey together. Absolutely, man. And I'm I'm very I'm very grateful that you came on the show today and had this chat with me. It's always great to catch up. I look forward to seeing what's next for you. Uh, Robert Costa, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and executive produced by Adam Barnard. The show is also produced by Sam Kreps. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almy. Our intro and outro music is produced by Dumb Ugly. Find this episode and our full archive at foundationradio.net. Follow us on Instagram at foundation underscore radio. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your favorite podcasts. This has been a Foundation Radio production. Butts Carlton, proprietor. Butts Carlton, proprietor.